Hello, everyone, and welcome to the December 3rd edition of the WorkCop Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Folsen, attorney with the Floyd Scarron Law Firm. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. The California Attorney General, along with a bipartisan coalition of 32 other states, filed an amicus brief in the United States Supreme Court supporting states' rights to regulate and address the rising cost of prescription drugs. In the case of Rutledge v. Pharmaceutical Care Management Association, the attorneys general argue that in order to protect the well-being of consumers, states must regulate pharmacy benefit managers. The case dates back to 2015 when the state of Arkansas implemented a law that regulated PBMs by setting standards for generic drug prices. Under the law, PBMs must raise their reimbursement rate for a drug if that rate falls below the pharmacy's wholesale costs. The law also created an appeals process for pharmacies to change these reimbursement rates. The law was challenged by the Pharmaceutical Care Management Association, who argued that the Employment Retirement Income Security Act, or ERISA, prevents the state of Arkansas from implementing this law. The Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals, in a unanimous three-judge decision, ruled in favor of the Pharmaceutical Association's challenge and struck down the new law. The appeals court upheld the lower court's decision, which held that the law was preempted by the ERISA Act and that trumped any change in the law brought about by the legislature in that state. The PBM industry declared this case to be a landmark ruling. But Arkansas has asked the U.S. Supreme Court to hear the case. The attorneys general argue that state laws regulating pharmacy benefit managers are not restricted by the federal ERISA law. This will be a closely watched case with 32 states supporting the California position on the merits. A claimant's failure to respond to an employer's request for more information protected her employer from her FIHA case. Here's what happened in the unpublished case of McKellar versus Cedars-Sinai Medical Center. Christine McKellar began her 16-year employment with Cedars-Sinai Center in 2000. Cedars terminated her employment in April of 2016. Before she was terminated, several of McKellar's physicians authorized a number of to-whom-it-may-concern letters to be sent to Cedars-Sinai, attempting to excuse her from work for unspecified medical reasons. None of the notes sent on McKellar's behalf contained sufficient information to satisfy Cedars' leave policies. Therefore, Cedar sent McKellar a series of letters detailing the specific information it needed from her to pro- process her request for a leave. McKellar received all of Cedar's letters, but never opened, read, or responded to any of them. McKellar did not request any accommodation from Cedar Sinai between her cessation of work on January 6, 2016, and her termination on April 20. Ultimately, Cedars-Sinai sent her a letter explaining that she had been separated from employment. 
McKellar then sued her company and alleged that Cedars-Sinai retaliated against her for filing a workers' compensation claim and discriminated against her based on her claimed disability. Cedars filed a motion for summary judgment arguing that it had a legitimate non-pretextual reason to terminate McKellar's employment. The trial court granted the motion and the Court of Appeal affirmed in the unpublished case. McKellar needed to produce admissible evidence in the trial court that the decisions leading to McKellar's termination were made on the basis of her disability or her workers' compensation claim. The record instead establishes that Cedars-Sinai did attempt to contact her by telephone, but that she had changed her telephone number because she did not want anyone at Cedars-Sinai to be able to contact her. Cedars-Sinai had no obligation to reach out to someone other than its employee to determine whether that employee intended to comply with the company's leave policy. And in another case, the Court of Appeal ruled that the Prevet Doctrine precluded a civil lawsuit death claim. The defendant in that case, Caltrans, contracted with Viking Construction Company for a construction project to widen roadways and bridges on a state highway in Butte County. The project included work on a bridge that was 21 feet above the ground. The Caltrans assistant resident engineer told Viking's foreman, Robert Burns, that the openings in a temporary traffic screen known as a gawk screen or a glare screen were to be filled in by the end of the shift. The purpose of the screen is to prevent motorists from being distracted by the construction work and to protect workers from the glare of the headlights. The screen had been installed in accordance with the standard plans. Burns and his co-worker Bradley Capps, who was an employee of Viking, began to install additional screens where necessary while it was still dark. As Burns was adjusting the light and Caps unstrapped the screen from the truck, Burns discovered that Caps had fallen from the bridge to his death from the bridge. Burns had fall protection for both men in the truck with him, but had not used it. Workers' compensation death benefits were paid to the dependents as a result of the incident. But Caps's surviving wife and children brought suit against Caltrans, alleging the accident occurred while Caps was performing work at the specific direction of Caltrans. Caltrans successfully moved for summary judgment on the basis that it was not liable under the limitations of the 1993 Prevet v. Superior Court ruling. The Court of Appeal affirmed in the unpublished case of Caps v. Department of Transportation. The Prevet Doctrine generally prohibits an independent contractor or his employees from suing the hirer of the con contractor for workplace injuries, with an exception for negligent exercise of retained control by the hirer. On appeal, plaintiffs contended that triable issues of fact remain as to whether Caltrans affirmatively contributed to Cap's death by interfering with Viking's work by going outside the established chain of command to order the unscheduled work. But Caltrans provided evidence that under the contract, responsibility for worker safety was delegated exclusively to Viking. 
Caltrans did not give Viking any instructions as to how to fill the gaps in the screen, did not provide any equipment, and did not give any advice as to safety measures. Thus, the Court of Appeal found no triable issue as to whether Caltrans retained and negligently exercised control over Cap's work at the time of his fall. And now our crime report. 25-year-old Gino Carl von Eckstein, who lives in Brisbane, California, was sentenced to 10 years in prison for possessing counterfeit Adderall pills that contained methamphetamine. He was indicted by a federal grand jury in June and pleaded guilty to the charge. Eckstein admitted that he possessed counterfeit Adderall pills, or pills that appeared to be Adderall, but in fact contained methamphetamine. He also admitted he stored the pills in his car at three locations in San Francisco's Richmond District, in Brisbane, and in San Leandro. Eckstein further admitted he possessed the equipment and ingredients necessary to manufacture counterfeit Adderall pills. In total, federal agents allegedly found over 1,000 grams of suspected methamphetamine. U.S. attorneys noted that counterfeit pharmaceuticals are a danger to the community and they are responding to the emerging threat, particularly when the substances are laced with potentially life-endangering drugs. In addition to the prison term, the court also sentenced Eckstein to a five-year period of supervised release. Candace Mitchell Craven, a Tennessee-based nurse practitioner, pleaded guilty in federal court, admitting that she participated in a healthcare fraud scheme that built the health care program that covers United States service members out of more than $65 million. As part of her guilty plea, Craven admitted to conducting sham telemedicine evaluations that resulted in the prescription of exorbitantly expensive compounded medications to patients that she never saw or examined in person. Craven will be sentenced at a hearing scheduled for February. According to the guilty plea, a team of individuals worked to recruit and pay Marines, primarily from the San Diego area, and their dependents to obtain compounded medications that would be paid for by TRICARE. This information was sent to Choice MD, the Tennessee Medical Clinic that employed Craven. Craven then conducted phone calls with the TRICARE beneficiaries and recommended that they prescribed compounded medications despite never examining the patients in person. These prescriptions were then signed by doctors employed by Choice MD, but were not given to the beneficiaries. Instead, the prescriptions were sent directly to particular pharmacies controlled by co-conspirators, which filled up prescriptions and billed TRICARE at exorbitant prices. Josh Morgan, a former Marine from San Diego, pleaded guilty in April to conspiracy to commit health care fraud for his role in recruiting TRICARE beneficiaries. The doctors who signed the prescriptions, Carl Lindblad and Susie Vergott, pleaded guilty to the same charges in September. Doctors working at Choice MD signed 4,442 total prescriptions, and their co-conspirators billed TRICARE more than $65 million for these prescriptions. 
Craven was the seventh defendant charged in relation to this fraud scheme. A former opioid sales executive was admitted to has admitted to participating in a conspiracy to bribe doctors to prescribe a highly addictive fentanyl spray. After Alec Berlikoff changed his plea to guilty, prosecutors say the former vice president of sales for Insys Therapeutics has agreed to cooperate with them in the closely watched case. They are targeting executives at the Chandler, Arizona company, including billionaire founder John Kapoor. Back in 2016, the defendants, all former executives and managers of Insys Therapeutics, were charged with conspiracy to commit racketeering, mail and wire fraud, and conspiracy to violate the anti-kickback law. The incest executives are accused of paying kickbacks to doctors willing to write large numbers of prescriptions for the powerful medication Subsys, which is meant for cancer patients with severe pain. Prosecutors say the kickbacks were disguised as speaking fees for events billed as opportunities for other doctors to learn about the drug. The indictment includes one California resident, 46-year-old Richard M. Simon, who lives in Seal Beach and who was the former national director of sales. In exchange for bribes and kickbacks, the practitioners wrote large numbers of prescriptions for the patients, most of whom were not diagnosed with cancer. A status hearing has been scheduled for the remaining defendants, and a pretrial motion hearing has been scheduled for defendant John Kapoor this month. Trial is scheduled to begin January 28th. And in regulatory news, Janak K. Matani, M.D., specialized in psychiatry in an office clinic under the business name of Fair Oaks Psychiatric Associates in Sacramento. He is also listed by the DWC as a QME in psychiatry at that same address. His QME certification has been revoked with revocation stayed, and he was placed on probation through October 11, 2019, concurrent with medical board probation. The medical board filed an accusation against Mitani, accusing him of grossly negligent acts in his care and treatment of three patients he treated for the effects of workers' compensation injuries. One of them was a 47-year-old female who was employed at a warehouse where she was injured on a number of different occasions and has had successive cumulative injuries. The first injury was back in 2003, and she was first seen by Dr. Mitani in 2008. The medical board reviewed his clinical notes and noted many medical errors and historical inconsistencies in his treatment of this patient. The board noted that he also documented a global statement without providing any clinical justification or explanation. This was such as his claim that she remained disabled from gainful employment without explaining and documenting exactly what was the patient's disability how the disability affects her life, and what are the barriers for progress. Batani signed a stipulated settlement and disciplinary order with the consent of his attorney. The stipulation was the basis of the medical board and subsequent DWC probation orders.
The California Consumer Privacy Act, or CCPA, is a major new state law poised to affect the privacy landscape, not just in California, but in the U.S. as a whole. It was signed into law by Governor Brown on last June after being hastily introduced in the California legislature for just a few days. The act gives consumers, which are defined as natural persons who are California residents, four basic rights in relation to their personal information. They have the right to know what personal information a business has collected about them, where it was sourced from, and what it is being used for. They also have the right to opt out of allowing a business to sell their personal information to third parties. They have the right to have a business delete their personal information with some exceptions and the right to receive equal service and pricing from a business even if they exercise their privacy rights under the Act. The Director of Government Affairs and General Counsel for the Coalition Against Insurance Fraud thinks the California privacy law applies to insurers and has very severe restrictions on the use of private data. He is concerned about what impact it might or might not have on an insurer's ability to even report fraud. Businesses expect to incur significant compliance costs in order to update procedures, policies, and websites in accordance with the new law. Additionally, the Act's grant of a private right of action means that companies will have to anticipate a possible flood of consumer-driven litigation. It is expected that the state legislature will continue to refine and amend the Act's privacy-related requirements before the final version of the law goes into effect on January 1, 2020. Legal experts in the field of data privacy claim in an article published in a legal newsletter that data privacy remains one of the most significant concerns facing the insurance industry. Companies should start formulating compliance strategies well before the law goes into effect in January 2020. Last August, another Massachusetts-based InsurTech, Oyster Insurance, began offering workers' comp insurance in both New York and New Jersey. The company now insures over 70 classes of business in those states and is now licensed in 26 states. Oyster Insurance just announced that they have begun providing workers' comp insurance to small businesses in California. Coverage initially began with professional classes such as software consulting firms, lawyers, and medical and dental offices. The company has expanded to covering variety stores, groceries, delis, bakeries, eating places, drugstores, jewelry stores, and florists. Oyster is enabling entrepreneurs and small business owners the ability to bind coverage online 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Its platform provides real-time quoting and binding capabilities and has been a significant factor in Oyster's growth. Oyster says they fuse technology, empathy, and expertise to make insurance what it should be, simple and stress-free. And in medical news, just weeks after Novartis floated the idea 
that four to five million dollars was a fair value for its new gene therapy against a deadly neuromuscular disease, a major benefit manager is pushing back. The drug maker's assessment of the value of AXIS 101 for treating spinal muscular atrophy, or SMA, has put the company front and center in the debate over what super drugs for rare diseases are really worth. Among the first to react was pharmacy benefits manager Express Scripts, which helps U.S. employers manage workers' prescriptions costs. Its chief medical officer said that he loves the science behind Novartis's therapy, a potential cure for newborns who are diagnosed early, but at $4 million or more per patient, he says, it is not sustainable over time. Novartis bought out Avexis for $8.7 billion in April to add the SMA therapy to its portfolio and is still mulling its asking price as it awaits U.S. Food and Drug Administration approval, likely in early 2019. But the company has begun its campaign to convince insurance groups and governments to cover AVXS 101, contending the one-and-done infusion will save society money over the long haul. Even with a cost near the highest ever for a one-time therapy, there's now only one approved drug for SMA, Biogen's two-year-old Spinraza, and it is listed at $750,000 for the first year and $350,000 a year thereafter. Spinraza is not a cure and must be taken indefinitely. A diagnosis of SMA, which affects 1 in 10,000 live births, is devastating. 40% of the victims have the severest form and historically die within months. Children with less severe SMA can live to adulthood, although with profound physical disabilities. Though they are cognitively normal, many cannot feed themselves and require 24-hour care, wheelchairs, and machines to help them breathe and cough. As Novartis prepares to launch AVXS 101, it also hopes for a tacit endorsement of its pricing strategy, from the Nonprofit Institute for the Clinical and Economic Review, that's ICER, which is currently reviewing the cost effectiveness of SMA therapies. The Boston based nonprofit carries out cost benefit analyses on drugs and is independent of big pharma, insurers, and government. Unlike European price regulators, ICER cannot dictate costs. But it has steadily gained influence in the U.S. pricing debate, as companies like Express Scripts and CVS Caremark and governments rely on its analyses. Novartis and Biogen, as well as Switzerland's Roach, which also has an SMA drug in development, are all lobbying ICER to broaden what it considers a meaningful benefit, potentially helping their therapies fare well in the group's review. Treatments for rare diseases like SMA are increasingly popular among drug makers because they command high prices while insurers are hard-pressed to reject claims 
especially for sick children. Sales of rare disease therapies will rise 11% annually, nearly twice the overall market rate through 2024, when they'll hit $262 billion. So that's all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and for much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, your iPad, or your Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. And we also publish a daily flash briefing on the Amazon Alexa Echo platform. Just search for Workers' Compensation News on the Amazon website. Again, I'm Renee Foles with Floyd Scarin, Manukian Langevin. Thanks for joining us today. Please drop by again next week for more news. 